0: Hi, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and this is Beer is a Conversation. Today I have a long chat with Greg Cook, co-founder of San Diego's Stone Brewing. I first chatted with Greg back in 2011 when he was actively campaigning against the grey importing of stone beers into Australia. At that time, like many others, I took the view, what's the harm? Sure, the beer isn't always great, but it will still be good and at least I get to taste the great beers of the craft brewing world. But Greg slapped that argument down with his incredibly passionate defence for drinking his beers fresh and the way he intended. His passion had a very lasting impact on me, and has influenced my approach to craft beer since. Much of today's discussion refers back to that conversation, so I'd really recommend that even if you have heard it before, you go back and revisit that chat. Of course, since that conversation, Stone is now imported to Australia by Experience It!, I have no doubt that Stone and Experience It take every possible care to get the beer to Australia in the very best condition. But when we last spoke, Greg identified Australia's internal transport and logistic structure as being a major barrier to his beer getting into our hands fresh. He also mentioned the price, saying that the cost of cold shipping would make his beers too expensive to sell here. Today, they're selling at close to $30 a six-pack. Today's conversation was sparked because Stone still says one of the greatest tragedies for the brewery is when a beer crafted to showcase hops is left languishing on a shelf for too long. Stone argues time erodes all of its botanical qualities. Yet Stone has made the decision to send its beer halfway around the world and despite the care they take in doing that, As a consumer, I have found it difficult to buy Stone that is younger than the 120 days that the brewery says is the outside limit for quality. Often, it is much, much older. And this seems contrary to Greg's earlier arguments for drinking his beer fresh. This conversation isn't about Stone's decision to extend the code dates on the beers sent to Australia, which has been written about on blogs such as Beer is Your Friend and Good Beer Hunting. It was more to learn in what ways does Greg think that the Australian market has changed since 2011, especially in the face of what I saw as pretty strong evidence that his beers are languishing on shelves, just as he predicted back then that they would. We talk about that, and the conversation meanders onto a few other topics as well, including the question of whether growing a craft brewery automatically involves making compromises as you scale, and the environmental sustainability of sending beer refrigerated halfway around the world. Enjoy the conversation. Um, but how about we uh, crack on with it? Um, now, I'll just very quickly introduce it and oh, we'll we go straight into the conversation. The, I
1: was sort of assuming we were starting right off the bat.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, no, well, it's just well, not live, but um, I'm, I'm happy to, to re- just keep rolling then. recording. If you want uh, yeah, to get we
1: talked about, that's fine. You know, to me, this is always a conversation about the wider thing of beer and life and philosophy and so on. So that's
0: your call. That's why we say beer is a conversation. So, uh, absolutely. Well, that's great. Well, I I guess the purpose of uh, this this conversation was we spoke back in 2011 uh, at a time when you were railing against um, the grey market importing of your beer into Australia. Um, And I asked you back then why you weren't prepared to send your your beers down to Australia, and you identified a number of issues uh, to do with the logistics uh, down here, and... Uh, felt that Australians wouldn't be drinking your beer the way that you intended uh, it to be consumed, these days it is available. What, in your view, has changed uh, in the intervening years?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a super simple and direct question and answer. We have a um, highly uh, oiled, well-tuned pathway now. And that was required for us to even descend the, the, the first bit so we work with uh, Johnny Latta and his team at Experience IT or Experience IT. Um, and, uh, you know, they were successful. Now it's a couple of years ago. They're successful at convincing us, not just convincing us, but showing us the stewardship and the mentality that they have uh, with beer and and a model that is principally um, based on a pre-sale model Um uh, and you know is all focused on getting beer to retailers within a, a very truncated amount of time that actually is well within our stated limits.
0: Okay, uh, and, and look, and
1: and sorry, and and and, if, and and also be a system that is reefer the entire way.
0: Yep, you know, r- refrigerated. R- 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 Joe. Yeah. And uh, you know, Johnny is um, you know, incredibly passionate, um, very determined to. Uh, get beer in in, in the best quality but you know going back to our former our earlier interview um, I did ask you that and I said um, the answer that I I was getting back then is well why doesn't Stone send it down send it refrigerated send it quickly and we will buy it in good condition and your answer back then was but they won't I understand that desire and that call but unfortunately it's dare I say a bit naive here's the situation Australia is very far away Australia is across the equator, so we'd have to use temperature control uh, our beer. Um, we have... And then you yep. talked about your what the steps you'd taken in the uh, US. You'd bought your own refrigerated fleet. Um, and essentially you said uh, it's it's a long way, it's got to be refrigerated, it's going to be expensive and it's going to be a uh, luxury good as opposed to, um, you know, an everyday beer. And retailer demand is going to be very slow. Um, so... We we anticipated you know having a great distributor back then, but do you think that the Australian retail chain has has changed?
1: I think it's changed dramatically. I mean, you could, you said it was 2011 to refresh uh, my 2011
0: memory. around about then. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's just say, you know seven seven years. Um, I think we can recognize it across the world on a functional level, which is across the beer drinking world. The beer, the craft beer industries have changed and matured a great deal. I can point to, you know, all of our time in in uh, in Germany and in, in Berlin specifically, but across Europe and watching the evolution. I remember when we first started, you know, Stone and and we were draft only. There were places. There are still bars in San Diego County that would serve beers via a um, uh, a, a plate chiller or a, you know just a you keep a warm keg and then it would go through a chiller to get you a cold glass but the keg was being you know kept under the bar or something in a spot and and now that virtually does not exist not only in San Diego but that's really would be an odd relic of the past to find a bar that that treats their beer in such a fashion today but it was common then so these things change and is realizing that if you want to you know a little bit of a um a phrase you can reply would you know you know sort of be the change you want to see like you know so if you if you see the opportunities to help the change and be a part of it and recognize that there are many out there that are doing the right way and doing it in a way that you really respect and wanting to help change the market um then you say okay that's something i got to support and i've again watched and, and, and I've witnessed how they stored it and it meets our standards. Okay and and, and um, again So what you were hearing from me was doubt that that was possible and I love being proven wrong on this point Okay. <laughs> you know I love it that's the best possible thing but my,
0: And again my, my question anticipated that there were uh, distributors that were willing to ship it across uh, the Pacific and across the equator cold but Then you went on to talk about uh, the Australian distribution fleet wasn't refrigerated, retailers weren't geared for refrigeration, and you asked me what my view of the market was back then, and I agreed with you, and Mm -hmm. nothing has changed. You know, the the market has matured a little bit, but we also have seen the number of breweries expand exponentially, both domestic brewers and uh, imported beers. So... uh, we are seeing, and we are seeing beers languishing on the shelf exactly as you predicted uh, seven years ago. But you, you, you seem uh, happier to have your beers uh, sitting on the shelf longer now than you did back then.
1: Uh, well, that's yeah, and I'm glad to you know uh, give some some color to that to, to illustrate the, that. So. Um, I don't know if you're aware, you know, if you if you you sort of uh, know the the rules on Australian retailers and what they demand for a code date on the beer. Yep, yep. So, so what do you do? You, uh, may I ask what do you know that? Uh, to mean?
0: Well, they want twelve months, nine to twelve months, uh, because right. if, if you put three months as you do, and, and instantly I commend you for um, putting the, the the dates on the beer. Um, that if because. Yeah. If it looks like six weeks when consumers are used to having a 12-month, um, they'll make assumptions about how old that beer is. Um, and, and, right. and I need to... I, I, this um, uh, discussion isn't so much about the dating codes and the extension of dating codes. It's more It's more what um, drove the, the, the beers uh, into retail in the first place that necessitated um, those right. um, code dates. And, you know... Again, you, you when we talked, uh, you said that, that the beer will be expensive, it won't, uh, it'll sit on shelves and, and, and won't sell through. And that doesn't right. seem to have changed.
1: So let me give some, some context. So the reason why I said that is because I had recently visited Australia, and, you know, loved it, of course, but saw a, a, a craft beer industry that, you know, wasn't quite there yet with, with the, what we needed to feel comfortable. And and so, you know, I I made those comments. And I also didn't feel that the reputation of stone was there so that if somebody saw a stone, they would say, "Ah, yes, I associate that with good beer. I associate that with a good choice that I might make while I'm at the store today. So as those things have started to shift, we saw the possibility to do it within our, our standards. And so we have. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you know your compliments to Johnny, which and his team, which which they deserve. Um, you know they're they're passionate about it. See, in order, to, but we and we found this exact same thing in the in uh, in Europe uh, with the code dates. In the United States, in the craft brewing industry, if you see a beer with 30 days left on the code date you're no you're perfectly comfortable you're like oh great i'm well within you know any any framework and this is great if you see in europe you go there and you see a beer with 30 days left you're like this beer your initial reaction is this beer is 11 months old because most beers have a 12 month uh, code date and retailers in the uk and throughout a lot of europe will not take the beer with less than x and sometimes like you said it's 9 months sometimes it's 12 months um, they won't, they won't take it no matter what, you know, no matter how fresh it is, they simply won't take it. So then you end up with a situation where, well, you can't get there from here. So what we have done in our contractual agreements with Johnny and his team is we say, okay, we're going to ask you to maintain our known code lines, which are in the 60 or not 60 in the 90, 120 day, depending on the exact beer range we're going to ask you to work to maintain the marketplace to those dates regardless of what the enjoy by date says on the can so really it's honestly it's kind of a it's a it's a it's a it's a method by which we can get into the system but we still did not let go of the goal of having our beer in proper condition now that being said i can We can find places in the United States. I can find places in San Diego, you wander into them from time to time and they have a dusty bottle of beer. It's never good. And we always take action on it. Um, We find it to be well under 1% of our, you know, of what's out there in the marketplace. So at some point, if you shut it down so tight, then kind of nobody gets it. You know, the other 99% suffers because that 1% you know, is always going to exist to some degree or another, and that doesn't seem to serve fostering a system by which we can better understand and make available great beer to the public.
0: You, you, but with anything, you're going to always have some failure points, and you work to address those failure points and fix them. Okay, um, and, and, and that, that's fantastic. I, I guess I, I can't comment on what percentage sells in, through what retail chain, but um, cool. once we teed up uh, the, the, this chat, I went out to six uh, – well, five retail stores and uh, ordered a couple of stone beers from what I regard as Australia's most reputable online um, Beer seller, the youngest mm-hmm. beer that I could find um, at, at any of these stores was brewed in September 2017, um, and we're now the the end of March. So the the youngest was outside of mm-hmm. the 120 days, and th- th- this is being warm stored. The oldest I found was uh, brewed in February 2017, so it, it was coming up against the extended use-by date, I didn't find any retail stock that was within that 90 to 120 days. That doesn't sound like a couple of failure points. It sounds like, um, you know, that there has been a compromise made on where the beer is going to be sold.
1: Well, uh, you know, and and I'm glad you you pointed that out to me, and it's certainly uh, worth being delved into on our side to, you know, try and, and find this out. It's, it's always a cooperation with the retailers. And if a retailer is going to, um, you know, get, buy too much stock, because that's, I mean, because, yeah, that, I mean, that's problematic and, and needs to get addressed. I, I don't have any, I'm not going to justify that at all. Um, and that's not good. Now, wh- what do you experience? Do you experience, uh, I mean, I, you, you must experience some you know, out of code beer from Australian brewers too. I, I hope not. That would be a better system.
0: If you but didn't. but again, uh, yeah, and yeah, I'm sure we do. And in fact, a lot of uh, our uh, local brewers don't uh, date code, um, and that was why we had a uh, one of the, the brewers we spoke to this week had written an article urging Australian brewers to put a brewed on date um, on their beer, so consumers can make a uh, informed decision. Um,
1: yeah i'm totally in favor of that that's why we that's why we do it so by chance did you and i you know i i'm I'm, you know cautious to ask this question but you know did you actually open any of the beers did you chill them down i I spent over
0: a hundred dollars researching um so the answer is the answer is yeah um and again i can send you some photos of you know opening a can of beer and having it gush um because it's uh and, and that was a september beer um so, you know, and and that's really what prompted uh, this story because it was speaking to you eleven years, uh, seven years ago, was very influential in my approach to writing about use by dates and things like that. Because I thought, well, you know, these guys are doing it right, right. and then suddenly uh, you see those same beers, um, and two of the retailers I went to um, are. I, I don't know if you are aware of Dan Murphy's and First Choice, which are our biggest retailers they're owned just as australia has a brewing duopoly we've got a retailing duopoly um and it is the longest warm retail chain that, that we've got um and you know i, I can understand uh beers being refilled down here stored cold as johnny does and then sold to specialty craft beer bottle shops that have that pull through and have an educated consumer but there does mm-hmm. seem an, an element of uh, compromise, or, in your term, um, insidious creep, to sell those beers into.
1: Well, that applied to something completely. Different. Well, well, it was, but but it was a term. Yeah, yeah. It, it
0: was a term that you used to describe a gradual compromise of you know values, um, and and that's why I picked up on it because you were calling somebody else out yeah. for making compromises, and I saw this as a. Uh, 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 fairly significant compromise um because it is the the beer is being sold into a retail chain that just doesn't have the ability to look after it the way you demand
1: well i'm gonna you know have speak with johnny and look at that i think it's worth it as it is every time we have in you know in, in the u.s um uh You know, we have uh, our our website specifically. We have a web page specifically designed where people can report expired beer, because we know it happens out there. We'll never have a system in our lifetime where there won't be. You won't find retailers that have expired beer. So, um, what you do is you you know work as actively as you possibly can, and that's why I'm willing to do conversations like 2011 and now. Uh, You know, I'm not going to say, oh, we're perfect and we got it nailed. I am going to say this is important to us. We have our standards. We work to maintain them. When we find that they aren't being met, we work to correct that situation.
0: Period. Excellent. Uh, I I guess one of the things that... uh, So we're we're packing the... That retail chain. A couple of the other things you identified back then were that to send the beer refrigerated is going to be as expensive as hell. Now, the, one of the beers that I was uh, looking at was Stone Ripper, um, which I th- believe sells for about eight ninety nine dollars in the US for a sixer. Is that... Um, I'm sorry, what was uh, Stone press? Ripper is about $8.99 for a six-pack. In yep.
1: the US? Oh, boy. Yeah, well 7 years ago. Oh, no. Maybe Co- <laughs> longer than uh, that. I, again, I, uh, I
0: jumped on so- uh, LINE so I it seemed I found a couple of retailers that seemed to be advertising it at 8.99, but uh that's what's Really?
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's extraordinarily cheap. I would expect it to probably be more like uh minimum of
0: 10.99. Okay. 10.99 would be a more common price, it's yeah. Retailing and I'm looking at a photo of it on the shelf here for 29.99 for a six pack. Um, and
1: right and remind me what the exchange rate has been a little while since i actually got a chance uh, to I think it's Australia, around about 82 so cents at a
0: dollar so you're probably looking about at best about 25 dollars a six-pack yeah us
1: well which goes to my you know the reality of it's, it's expensive beer down there there's no question about it and and you know and that that's you know it's a three-dimensional world that we live in meaning specifically with the with the beer, you know, you have the, the beer and the flavor profiles itself, what's available locally, what your reputation is, what the, you know, the, the shipping and, and the, the costs involved and, and our standards with the refrigeration and the, the end uh, up in the shelf price. And then a particular retailer and their characteristics and do they store, how do they store it? What's their pricing policy? Uh, what's their, you know, what's, how do they store it after it? How much do they look at it? Is it enough? Is it could it use some improvement? You know, and all of these things go into this very complex model that really is just, you know, sort of everyday beer business that we live in. And and you it, it requires having your, your wrenches out every day, tweaking and, you know, adjusting the gears, trying to get them to work properly. And from time to time, machine smokes and, it you know, uh, uh, there's a, a fire, you're working on one end of it and there's a, you know, it starts rattling on the other end of it. And you got to pull up your toolbox and go over and see what's going on over there. You know, with this analogy, it's just the nature of it. And, you know, they just turn off the machine and go home and turn off the lights is, you know, fortunately not the, the, the thought process of the craft beer world. Otherwise, we wouldn't be anywhere close to where we are today, which is people can get awesome beer every day, most places.
0: Yep, yeah, and, and uh, look, there, there, there was a lot in in that comment, um, and, and I guess just sort of stepping back to our earlier conversation, you anticipated all of the the things or all, all of the issues that are causing the the, the problem that I've identified, um, and that was why I uh, started the, the the chat by asking what has changed in Australia because I don't see that the, the problems you identified with. Long distribution routes, the cost of refrigeration, uh, and shelf price, um, reducing pull through, um, and therefore beer sitting idly on shelves, don't seem to have changed. And it's not about your beer; it's about the the Australian marketplace. And we've seen it, a huge expansion in right. competition down here. And we've just as in in the states, we've seen a huge explosion in the number of local breweries who are also vying for that shelf space. Um, and right. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, what had changed in the Australian marketplace that you, you, you felt that that the beers, quite apart from the distributor, what was in the marketplace that um, you know meant that the beer could survive? It was
1: the distributor was a major, major, major part of it. Us feeling uh, the faith, which I feel is well placed by and large, ours feeling the, the the faith in our importer to get the job done in a in a way that that works. And, uh, you know, at their frequency of reorder, uh, you know, you, looking at that is to understand that there is pull through. It does go well. We are selling well. And there's gonna be, and, you know, it's always disturbing to find those eddies uh, on the side of the stream where there's just, it's it stopped and it's just swirling in place. And you, you want to, you know, clear, clear the debris so that it can flow through again and you got to know about it and i'm glad to know about this you know as painful as it is to hear on a conversation like this it's you know it's an official interview hey i'm glad to know about it
0: I uh, you also mentioned that you know it is a difficult thing uh to, to keep the engine running and that craft beer wouldn't be here if we didn't take these uh chances is is there an inherent limiting factor in this notion of craft that um craft is meant to be a local uh product a small local product well
1: no no, well that's not what craft means by the definition we commonly use the not the definition i use um craft is the it, it isn't you know it it isn't focused on a locality or a distance, you know, whether it's a, it's a you know, is it a hundred miles, is it 50 miles or is it a thousand miles it's um, it's stretches borders. I mean, I'm, you know, right now, I happen to be on the Island of Maui um, for a short while. And, and um, I'm having, you know, our I got some because I love it so much. I got some of our stone Berliner vices, our, our white geist Berliner vices, which is made in Germany, and it traveled a long way to get to me. And it traveled always by ship, and in, you know, in a very sort of environmentally, you know, friendly, you know, efficient way. Um, and it's a very you know small amounts, but hey, um, that's you know, that falls within the definition of craft to me. I'm glad it's a spice of life, right? I'm really glad to be able to
0: have it. I I, I guess what what is craft then to you? What does craft encapsulate? Is it just the uh, fairly, uh, you know, the the, the trade definition that the Brewers Association use or is there uh, more caught up in it?
1: Well, it's always, it's like anything, whether it's, you know, art or, or pornography, it's, you know, in the eye of the beholder, it's a congressman in the United States. Um, I'm badly paraphrasing, which means that just everybody's going to see it through their own lens. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, the, the Brewers Association's definition does ring true, by and large. Um, most breweries, you know, it has a, uh, a fairly high upper limit, which has had some controversy, which I understand. But none of the breweries are even anywhere close to that. I mean, nowhere close to that. Um, You know, Sierra Nevada, which I believe is currently the second largest craft brewer in the United States, is, you know, around the million barrel mark. So, you know, and they absolutely qualify in my mind. Nothing but eternal respect for that company. Um, So it's, you know, it, it wants to be, it's sort of like, I don't know, you know it when you see it, and it's really up to the individual to decide. Hey, some people say, well, stone's too big, they're not craft, which is sort of silly in my mind, but okay. (laughs) Then then, then call us what you want. Hopefully you'll call us good beer, and hopefully it'll be fresh when you have it.
0: That's our goal. There is a lot of value um, judgment involved in in craft, and people do uh, feel what they see, but there are inherent notions of Craft is better because the ingredients uh, that are are used, the brewery size and scale, and that's, you know, I I take your point, is is, uh, does a brewery that grows necessarily not become craft? But yet people are willing to then say that the the day after a brewery is bought out, suddenly it's not craft or it's not true craft um, is is the word. Um, And that was more where your concept of insidious creep came in. but doesn't any form of growth involve compromise?
1: Wow. That's a heavy question. Hmm. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's not in by its very nature. It's not mandatory of compromise. You can, Hit qualitative standard. I mean, I there's small breweries. I, I got to visit China recently, and there's small breweries that I had heard of in the United States, but aren't available in San Diego, that are available in China. And um, I thought that was kind of cool, actually. And I got a chance to taste some, and there were there was a range. Some were in great shape, and some were okay. That's maybe not the best. But I can tell you the reaction the, the Chinese folks I you know I, I met with they were just ecstatic to get anything. And um, while I don't want them to have just anything, and we don't want to sell them just anything, we want to sell them you know something awesome. It's you know, you, you we have a fluid world and we got to move through with an eye towards a goal.
0: Well, I guess what I was uh, thrusting at then is you know, back seven years ago when I said, "You know, shouldn't we be entitled to to get stoned?" And you said, "No, support your local guys. You've got some great guys down doing there. Help them flourish. Buy their beer." Um, right.
1: I uh, can stand by
0: that. Uh, yeah, that'd be great.
1: I do it when I visit Australia. I buy some Australian. I buy a range of beers, probably mostly Australian beers.
0: But if they're spending a hundred dollars on a carton of out of not out of date stone but out of your acceptable um life stone how does that help the local industry um particularly when you you said last time that it's not helping them to get an understanding of what's going around the world because if you're drinking that beer that i've identified you're not drinking your beer and you would have slapped it out of their hand if you saw them drinking it well i don't think i would have had such a (laughs)
1: a physical reaction
0: but um, (laughs) i I, I can read back the quote if if you want it was uh i'd slap it down out of your hand and pour it down the sink because if you've paid one dollar for it you've paid too much
1: well yeah so that was a a condemnation of um of gray market trans shipping which is very negative because that within that system it's a built-in failure Right from the beginning that it starts, you know, more often than not, and so that that was a bad one. And you know, I realized, hey, uh, um, that was a a, a a colorful quote from me.
0: And, and, but again, intention doesn't protect the beer, and that, and that's that, that's where I was sort of coming to this idea of sure, uh,
1: yeah, but we have but we have a, a system which we can acknowledge is not perfect and needs working on but you don't work on it by sitting on your hands you don't work on it by saying you know shrugging and going there's nothing i can do instead you work on it from inside and you actively work to make the system better every day and in the meantime you you have to you know i I actually have you know gotten to the point where i believe that you've got it's better to try than than do nothing it's better to work at it and and actively participate in that change you want to see and we do and i'm again i'm glad to know points of failure because i know you that's where you uh,
0: grab your tool bag and you go over to that part of the machine and start tweaking it so that you can fix it well what can be done again the 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 retail chain we're, we're looking at is the longest uh dry ship retail chain in, in the country. How, how do you fix their retail chain?
1: I don't know what that actually means. What's longest? Uh,
0: well, just in terms of time, uh, central warehousing shipping out to, uh, you know, Australia is a big country as you identified, um, previously. Um, sure. and it goes from central warehousing out to stores around the country where it's, um, not refrigerated at all and sits on dry shelves. Um, uh, you know, so it sits on warm shelves um, again for anything up to judging by my research uh, 12 months um, how, how do you get them to change their practices when uh, communication
1: and, and you work
0: with them uh,
1: yeah I, I don't know because I don't have a personal relationship with that uh, that retailer uh, i have to admit so I'll have to um, have some conversations to learn more yeah you know not having been prepped with with this particular thing I just i I, I don't have an answer for you so I do not know mm-hmm. the answer to that I don't have a mm-hmm.
0: fix well and, and, again I, I'm, I'm worried that I'm sort of uh going back over the, the the same ground and I don't intend to but these were all things that you identified when we spoke um all of these problems um it, it, it's not something that has cropped up out of nowhere you identified all of these problems um, when when we spoke and that's why i keep coming back to you know what has changed and isn't isn't there an element of compromise that's uh, gone on in that
1: uh no i think what there is is there's the element of risk and you you know you have to you have to risk in business and in life you have to take a risk And then when you find something isn't working, then you work to fix it. And if you can't, then you change course. Okay. And again,
0: yeah, I mean, there's no point uh, sort of going, maybe I can touch base with you uh, um, for a follow-up at some, you know, in in a couple of months, I won't leave it six, seven years again. Um, But uh, (laughs) just just going back to the the question of, you know, uh, intent doesn't protect beer. Um, Beer is essentially a volatile product. Um, All beer, whether it's the Fizzy Yellow Liquid um, that is designed to be shelf-stable um, or, you know, very hop-driven craft beer. It's a volatile product, but craft beer is at the more volatile end of that spectrum. Um, is
1: can be. It depends
0: on the style. And, uh, absolutely.
1: Not, not every, yeah, yeah. And we're working on, uh, specifically, we're working on an export IPA that is specifically going to be designed uh, is just, you know, it should be able to handle potentially a few years. That'd be awesome. It's a brat IPA. But we're working on it specifically with, with you know, uh, some some more challenged markets in mind, whether it be Brazil or maybe India or, or maybe Australia. Um, and, uh, you know, if frankly, if we didn't have an existing channel to Australia, this, you know, the, the smaller increments, because it's as in nature, it's a nature, it's a more specialized style of beer being a bread IPA. It's not something for everybody's palates or not something that everybody is used to, but you have to have a channel to be able to get it to them. And so then having a more sophisticated consumer, which we always work towards, that's what conversations like this, anybody's listening, you know, is, a, is they're interested in becoming a little bit more insightful. how things work and what it's all about and what to look for and what maybe to avoid if
0: necessary i I, I can't wait to to try the beer it sounds very exciting but outside of those you know relatively limited examples of beers that are designed um for for aging, um you know beers like uh stone ripper wouldn't be brewed for a long shelf life is that a reasonable statement it's yeah, it's not designed to
1: be an ageable style. That yeah. is correct.
0: But does that inherently limit um, how how far it should be set? You know, are, are beers like that designed for a global market? It's not a it's not a it's it you know in its
1: purest most technical basis, it's not a distance issue because distance can be solved reasonably well with a. Uh, shipping container, we're on the coast, you know, goes over to the Australian coast. It's, you know, doesn't get hung up on at the docks and the ports on either side for more than a day or so, uh, generally speaking, and it's refrigerated. So it adds, um, I don't have off the top of my head what the shipping time is, but it's under a couple of weeks. So, you know, beer can easily arrive across that, that gap um, efficiently. Carbon footprint efficiently because shipping, by its nature, is is actually a very efficient way to move goods. Um, and so then then it's about the, the the quality of the system that exists. And there are uh, failure points in San Diego. We self distribute in San Diego, and like I said, we can find failure points. You you identify them, and you fix them. So I I, I hear everything you're saying, but you know. No, I'm not sure what else I can. Yeah, tell you. no,
0: that's okay. But I mean, even um, <laughs> just looking at the comments, yeah.
1: we're just identifying the beer industry as a whole, and you you don't you don't you work to fix it from the inside, and that's what we determined is the best way to do it. You know, to actually try and set the standard, meet the goals, and um, and make our beer available to people that are interested. Uh,
0: and just one of the comments that uh, was was made on the previous discussion, um, uh, somebody said, on the whole, I thought his argument was good, and had almost had me doubting myself about grey market beers. Um, but then he mentioned the environment like he's a friend of the earth, after he talked about shipping all over the US in refrigerated shipping. Um, I, I take your point that shipping by sea is uh, uh, you know, a more efficient way of um, shipping, but refrigeration, refrigerated shipping is, takes away from that, uh, environmental benefit somewhat. Um, and is,
1: well, you got to have, I mean, things as products that need to get refrigerated, get refrigerated, whether it's milk or something else. I mean, I understand, I understand that, uh, you know, I'm a very big environmentalist myself, but we, we don't live in that world that exists in a different way than, than what you're, I, I don't even. <laughs> yes, I get you, but
0: but but we don't send milk. To to my knowledge, we don't send milk. Cold milk.
1: Yeah. Okay. So milk is not a perfect analogy, but uh, this is the beer industry. You let's look at the beer industry. So if we're going to talk about the beer industry, um, we can't have uh, you know on the shoulders of stone all of the p- potential. Ills Because we don't get credit for all the, the benefits. I don't get credit for, uh, you know, craft beer as a whole. Don't deserve it. Wouldn't be right. We give credit for our portion of it.
0: So, so I'm, I'm not yeah. sure what, what, what you mean by that. Well, I'm not
1: sure where we were headed with the conversation. Perhaps I was just uh, again. I was was just going back to your question. Isn't
0: you know, um, whilst you can send your beer around the world and have it, uh, you know, arrive in good condition if you refrigerate it, is that the best way to do it? Particularly when uh, you. Talk about fresh beer on one hand, but also sustainability on another. You know, it...
1: yeah, because we're it's all quite efficient these days. The technology is, you know, it just it climbs every year. and It's like I got an electric car years ago, and uh, I had one neighbor is like, oh, just telling me you don't understand what it's like to recycle those things, and you don't understand, you know, how much it costs to to and how much the environmental impact of, of making the batteries is. And I'm like, okay, but we do know that the previous, you know, the existing internal combustion, you know, fossil fuel system isn't ideal and it needs to get refined. And so since that conversation that I had with that neighbor, um, you know, those issues have been improved upon. But what if nobody was doing anything and just sitting and going, oh, we can't and oh, woe with me and wringing hands. Um, I was very happy to be. Uh, you know, an early adopter in an electric vehicle, even though maybe that exact electric vehicle, and I couldn't tell you, to be honest with you, I don't know all the details. I'm not an electric vehicle expert and a recycling expert, but uh, maybe that exact one um, wasn't on the plus side of the equation. But I I believe that the goal was to end up, and I think we're successfully seeing that. And I know Tesla, for just one example, that done a tremendous amount of work in Australia with their with their batteries and their solar technology and, and such. So you you got to just be an active part of the process and realize that doing something is better than doing nothing, I, I, especially if you have your
0: goal. Oh, look, I, absolutely. Right I place. agree. Buying an electric car is better than buying a petrol-driven car, but I'm not sure how committing... Beer to an international shipping channel makes shipping more effective I, I, i'm not i'm not sure how those two arguments um
1: well i know that i know that there's a you know like i read a uh in northern California, the sacramento river delta a lot of people grow rice and it's a tremendous uh, environmental impact to do so they have a lot of uh, you know, they call the Delta smelt. It's just a, a fish that's endangered and, you know, that's very protected and and all this. And um, I read something that re- realized that it's probably more environmentally friendly to eat Indian rice from India in San Diego than it is necessarily to have rice that comes from just a few hundred miles um, uh, and from the northern part of the state. Now I don't know. I haven't done. I'm not a research scientist in environmental and you know, foot carbon footprint and whatnot. But the reality is, is that you know, ocean shipping is quite efficient, and we do a very small amount of it. It's really quite incremental in comparison to you know the the volume of our beer produced. It's really quite small.
0: Okay. Uh, I yeah. I appreciate that shipping is efficient but uh, I am given that beer is made here as well and we don't it's not affecting the fish um <laughs> so I am I'm I'm, sure. I'm I'm not quite sure that yeah but uh, we will we'll move on wow yeah. um uh, just just uh, to to finish off um you're very passionate about beer and you rail against, uh, fizzy yellow liquid. Um, and you know, you, 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 uh, I think make, make fun of it. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> poke fun. Um, we poke fun. Definitely. Do you feel the same way about something like cheese slices? You, you... Yes.
1: Yeah. In fact, I, I've used that in my, my talks. I've, uh, you know, in, in the Craft uh, Brewers Conference, when I gave the keynote uh, address, I think it was 2009, I, speci- I specifically called out pre-wrapped uh, um, cheese slices, vacuum-packed, uh, uh, freeze-dried, uh, vacuum-packed instant coffee crystals. What else did I do? I think maybe a hot dog. Um, you know, it was sort of the industrialized notion, um, the industrialized facsimile of the real thing. Uh, so, oh, yeah, no, well, I was just asking because,
0: uh, yeah, <laughs> whether well, 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 that passion yeah. extends. Yes, I do feel um, the
1: same way. Oh, yeah, f- uh, oh, across the food industry, and that manifests itself in the way we approach our restaurant, um, and our food philosophy there, um, both in, in Germany as well as in uh, our two locations in San Diego and the one we're about to open in Napa, California.
0: Um, that's Part and but how did we get to the situation where those cheeses became so popular? Um, I mean, if, if the U.S. is anything like Australia, you know, eight-dollar block cheddar cheese, um, and it would be much cheaper in the states, I'm sure. But uh, we, we we had this situation where uh, that there is very cheap cheese, but at the same time, there are uh, there's a world of Uh, fine cheesemakers and we never got to the stage that we did with uh, craft beer where it really did get down to uh, a very limited choice in beer what was it about beer that um was it businesses creating that or was it consumers actually choosing well it's
1: a commodity Commoditized system. Well, the consumers in many ways felt they had no choice. And you're looking at the. You talk about three-dimensional scenarios and multi-moving parts. What we had is you know human race. Is we had the situation where um, just getting food, right? Except for our recent history, you know the last few seconds of a of a of a 24-hour clock of human history. Within um, the past hundred or so, you know, hundred plus years, um, we. Just in the past 100 plus years, 150 years, 200 years, depending on where you're at in the world exactly, could be even less, uh, you know, a couple of decades. Uh, we've been moving away from as a society, as a people on the planet from uh, uh, just getting food. And there are still people who have this challenge every day, just absolutely being able to eat, not being discerning on what you can eat, just having some food to eat so you can sustain your life. Uh, In the westernized world, we had the Industrial Revolution. And then it became about food safety and food production. Can I eat one that won't hurt me, that won't kill me, that isn't spoiled? And then, you know, that became the commoditized system. And at first, commodity was very good because it was safer. But then, as we slowly started to go towards, uh, we went to luxury brands. We went to you know, versions of the commodity thing that seemed better and people could use it as a status symbol whether it's, you know, beer or anything else. And I remember in the 1970s where I grew up in the grocery stores, you know, we had two kinds of tomatoes and we had two kinds of cheese, maybe three. We had the yellow one in the pre-wrapped cheese slices. We might've had something called, we called Swiss cheese which was a lighter yellow with holes in it that the Swiss would have been a, you know, and horrified of. And then I don't even know what the third cheese might have been. And, you know, like we had the vacuum packed, freeze dried instant coffee crystals. Today we have, we're sort of returning back to authenticity. We're, We're returning back to normalcy. And that normalcy is more consistent with human history. What's the one that people in the village in the small town who had pastures surrounding them and you had people that mostly lived in an agrarian lifestyle, but you had your carpenters and your workshops and your your, you know, your and, and, and your craftsmen and such like that. And they were they were making things that they just have been taught to make from their, you know, fathers and mothers. They'd be handing handing knowledge down. And so that's what we've gotten it's it's a really special thing that we get to have the modern enlightenment as it overlays with this craftsman mentality and the sort of the real version. So now you and I know what real beer tastes like, real authentic as you would make it at home. And especially if you were really, really skilled. And so whether it's cheese or beer or coffee, we live in one of the best times ever on this planet because that cheese and that beer and that coffee are all safe. And some of them you have to choose from are enlightened, enlightened from a craftsman perspective, enlightened maybe from a free trade, if you know coffee perspective, enlightened from a wildest cheese is from a, you know a certain mountainside in a part of Italy, and they only make you know they have this uh, natural um, you know bacteria that that creates a certain mold profile and flavor profile. And uh, I don't get to eat it very much, and it's kind of expensive, but I, it's something I get to choose from, and it's really special, and I cherish it. Or I get the one from the guy down the road. And that's that's just awesome. And, you know, I'm very familiar with food in the food system. I'm in restaurants, and I'm very familiar with the food and the food system being somebody who's had past health problems that were essentially solved by learning that what i ate and i feel like an idiot now but when i was young when i was in my teens and 20s i thought if they sold it to me it was safe to eat and i frozen burritos <laughs> you know and and i had horrible health problems horrible and gastrointestinal problems i've given talks on this you can you can find them online and and just eating actual real food which is what i'm a big proponent of changed all that it's, this is all, this is, you know, I was talking about, you know, three-dimensional 360-degree worlds and, you know, process. This is mine now that I'm talking about, the one that I've journeyed through. Um, it led to, to Stone, um, both directly and indirectly. I, I, when I had my first real beer, I was inspired and I was angry that, that, you know, I had not discovered it before and I felt like I had been prevented from getting it. And, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so, you know, it it changed my life and I think it changed my life for better. And now I hope to just bring that out to the world with what we do and you can't do it without risk.
0: No, but I I, I, I I was listening to that uh, very eloquent uh, summary of the evolution of food, and it's it's something that I'm very passionate about as well. And I, I guess that's underpinned a lot that I've wanted to talk to you about today is that whilst I love the ideas um, you did talk about, um, you know artisanal and uh, you know villages and things like that, and I guess that's uh, why I'm asking. You know, is can you, as Greg Cook and Stone Brewing um in san diego uh spread those ideas around the world whilst keeping your beer local isn't that the best way and if you don't doesn't that risk stone becoming exactly the same commodity that you're railing against no no
1: only if we're willing to become a commoditized company which we're not we're you know, it, it, and I realize that the, you know the scales are different in, in Australia, being just smaller from a sheer population base. Um, but you know, the size of our brewery is is while it's larger amongst the small brewers, it doesn't even show as a you know a ping on the distant radar from the large brewer perspective. You know, we we um, it's just a different it, it's a different scale and and. You know, can we make a beer to our standards? Yeah. Now, can we do that again? Yeah. Can we add another tank next to it? And can we do it with that tank also? Yeah. So, if you, as long as you can keep saying, Yeah, can we do that to our standards with each step of the way? And you use those qualitative marks as the immovable object in the equation where things can move around it then you're good. And that's what our experience has been. You know, there's always going to be some people that say, Hey, you know, when they played in the clubs, they were cool. And now they're playing stadiums. They suck. Mm -hmm. I get that. Um, It's the nature of it. We love discovering our, you know, this, the small thing and and the thing that, you know, only we know about, or, you know, some people make um, fun Mm -hmm. of, you know, some hipster mentality, um, you know, you, you, you know the best one is the one you've never heard of. And I get that, too. I love discovery. I mean, I love travel. I travel. I've had um, special opportunities and, and the joy of my life to have been able to travel greatly around the world. And um, I, I love cherishing all of this. You know, once every two years, I go to Turin, Italy for the Salone d'Augusto, which is a slow food event. It's the world's largest artisanal and specialty foods event. And it's tiny producers of specialty foods and growers of specialty things from all over the world. And is that, and they ship in their themselves and they ship in their products from all over the world. And some of them have to be sponsored because they come from poor countries or poor areas where they couldn't possibly afford to travel themselves. And they have a special sponsorship program to enable those people to get there too. And you say, well, wait a minute, isn't that the opposite of what that's all about? To go through all of this, to ship it, to turn Italy, and then gather with huge crowds in an old Fiat factory to go up and down aisles and, and sample this stuff that I'm never gonna be able to buy again anyways? Why are they promoting? It's because once you get that collective mentality going and you spark that conversation and you, you share your best practices and you look at opportunities, to bring that back home and to be inspired and to increase the, the the awareness and your ability to do it. And you make connections across the world and across industries that help you do your job better. All of these things, they, they really work all together. So it turns out that, well, that, that other thing, is a very small percentage of the grand equation. And the bigger thing is the ripple effect that, that comes forth from it, which is the real wonderful thing. And so
0: that's what we're focused on, is that positive ripple effect. It, it's interesting. Uh, because, and I, I, the, the, the question wasn't about scale or size because I fully appreciate that the scale of stone compared to US mainstream brewers is uh, you know, fractional. But then by, by yep. the same token, Australian craft brewers compared to stone has that same uh, you know, relationship. They're fractional to your size. Um, as, as does the guys that, you know, that just opened up the street down from us in San Diego yeah.
1: are, are fractional to us. Yeah,
0: absolutely. But, but one of the things, you know, uh, beer has always been local. You know the, the best beer has always been local. And even in Germany, I, I love traveling through Germany because you can travel 20 miles. And whilst the beers are, are very similar in style, it's a different brewery and they have a lovely um, expression, drink around the chimney. Um, You know, you you drink the beer when you can see the chimney of the brewery from your house. Um, And to me, that's one of the reasons why it was that culture. That was
1: only the case.
0: How how, what what do you mean? You know,
1: as I would say, as I have mentioned in the past, you know, Germans, it's really, Germany is wonderful and I love the country and we love being there. Germany is, you know, Germans are Absolutely passionate about their local brewery. They will, you know, fight for it. They will, you know, argue for it. They will just, you know, and all this. They're absolutely passionate in every way except when it comes to their buying decisions. Then they buy the cheap one. They buy the cheap. In Germany, like every other country, by the way, every other country is mostly a industrial, cheap beer country. In fact, in Germany, it's uh, you know the cheapest uh, beer in Western Europe. Cheapest beer price mm. in Western Europe. And, you know, what occasion can you have cheapest and best? Now, I'm not saying that German beer isn't the best, because German beer is wonderful. Um, but commodity versions are, yeah, not so great. Actually, I would even argue that commodity German beers are better than most other countries' commodity beers. But who wants commodity beers?
0: But when you travel from uh, city to city, their local brewery is the one that you you, you see the... Uh, awnings for, and you see, you see the, 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 the tap fonts, it's not the Becks and it's not the, um, they may be there.
1: Yeah, not so much anymore these days because Germany has the tidehouse House system, which means that a brewery can, can buy the rights or pay for the rights and can get contractual rights to serve their beer and exclusively their beer in a given pub. So usually those don't indicate actual loyalty or actual interest or actually anything other than who bought the rights at that bar or restaurant and it does have a concentration around a particular area if a brewery is located in a certain town they are more likely to have been the winning bidder uh, for that but it's not a unfortunately it's not a testimony onto the quality of their beer positive or negative it might be positive might be negative that it's just not a testimony in either direction and it's not a testimony as to the loyalty of the, the locals, um, as illustrated by the fact that so many breweries have been closing over the last several decades in Germany and a lot of Europe. Um, but the, as you identified, they didn't have a lot of points of differentiation between from brewery to brewery to brewery in many cases. Now, there's there's lots. You know, Germany is a wonderful beer country, one of the best in the world. But really, if you have a rental car, uh, a gas card, and um, vacation time because you have to travel to the beer, but in, 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 you know, you talk about carbon footprint, it's a, although take vacations, I believe, you know, even though vacations are high carbon footprint, the spread of international goodwill and knowledge and getting to see people in different cultures and different experiences and things like that benefits our world far beyond staying in our little echo chambers. Um, but you know, uh, the most people, you know, are are just buying around the world. They're just buying the cheap commodity one, whether it's the cheap commodity cheese, the cheap commodity coffee. Even with our coffee culture that has grown up so much, and I know in the United States we've been influenced by the Australian coffee, coffee culture in good ways. Yeah, so wow. it's it's interesting. It's you know it's a nuanced.
0: <laughs> it, it is in ten thousand years of. uh Beer culture and philosophy uh, could lead to a much longer chat, but I, I suspect I've taken up uh, more than uh, enough of your time for which, you, which you've been very generous. Yeah. So, Greg, uh,
1: I can wax poetically about this stuff
0: because it's you know it's it's a passion of mine: food, beer, culture, all of it. But and and, and again, it it it, it is um, something that both sparked uh, the, the craft beer revolution that uh, passion, but that's where I'm grappling uh, in my beer journey at the moment is is there an end point to which uh, breweries shouldn't grow so I uh, well oh, oh, we'll just finish by asking one question um, you do send your beer uh, down to Australia um, what what does a hundred dollar carton of stone add to the local market that we wouldn't have uh, but for stone being here
1: I, I'm not able to answer that's for the that's for you and the consumer to you know the beer fan to answer I I, I couldn't I couldn't presume to answer that question. It adds, other than it adds our beer to the equation. It adds a choice. And I'm a believer in, in choice.
0: Great way to finish. Greg, you need to have
1: more choice or less choice.
0: Yep. Okay. No, no, no. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I thought you'd finished. And I'm, I'm just That's very, okay. very conscious of uh, how finish. much uh, uh, my philosophical ruminations have taken, cut into your day already.
1: Well, thanks for the conversation. Greg,
0: thanks very much for your time. And uh, I hope I'll uh, touch base with you again, uh, maybe in a couple of months, just to see what the uh, answer is to the the beer issue. You got it. Cheers. And that was Greg Cook. If I seemed a little flustered during the conversation, I have to admit to being taken a little aback that Greg didn't seem to be aware that we were discussing the age of his beer sitting on shelves. Um, This surprised me as we had an exchange about it on Twitter and that was what sparked the conversation. Anyway, as he wasn't prepped for it, I I couldn't go too deeply into specifics. I will follow up with Greg in the near future to see what comes of the conversation and I have also emailed Experience It to get their thoughts on whether there is an issue and what can be done around the problem of old beer sitting on shelves. In any event, it was still an interesting chat about beer that unexpectedly evolved into one about the philosophy of craft beer in a very pragmatic world. I really appreciate Greg's generosity with his time. As always, beer is a conversation and you can keep this conversation going by letting us know what you think about beer and freshness, whether Australian brewers should put a brewed on date on their beer, whether there is an issue with stale beer being sold and whether unpasteurised craft beer can be sent halfway around the world and still retail in good condition. And also, whether it should be. Email your thoughts to producer at BruiseNews.com.au. We thank Cry Bolt, who have been with us since the beginning, for making another episode of Brews News possible. We will be back Sunday night with a Radio Brews News, ready for your Monday morning commute. Have a great week. <music>